Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. What is the storm in Jesus' parable about the wise and foolish builders? That is the question we will try to answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, along with my co-host, as always, Trevin Wax. And uh, Trevin, we're looking at a parable of Jesus, which some may not consider difficult to understand because they just, they've heard it a million times. But yeah. it's really funny. This is one of those ones where uh, we've done it. Uh, this is actually the only one that we have done multiple times and we didn't like any of the recordings. So we have never actually aired this one. So we're trying it again. This yes. was our pilot episode. Yeah, partly because, I mean, so so we in this podcast, we focus primarily on controversial texts, right? Or texts that are debated. But in one sense... Um, the entire Bible fits that description because mm. <laughs> there's basically some kind of controversy or debate over all of the Bible. And when you get to the parables of Jesus, um, there are lots of interpretations about the meaning and the application for the various parables. So we're going to be looking at Jesus's parable of the wise and foolish builders. It's found in two Gospels. You got it in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's the first parable that you find in uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew. It comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And then you find it again in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain. Um, but we're going to um, uh, look just at the Matthew version, and we're going to talk about uh, what the storm represents in this parable, the different interpretations for that. Okay, so I'll read Matthew 7, 24 to 27, and then uh, the parallel version is in Luke 6, 46 to 49, if you want to look that up later. But I'll read uh, Matthew 7 in the CSB. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Okay, so... You say, well, that, there's the parable. What is it that makes the text difficult? Well, it's certainly not on what it means to have your, your life built on the rock. Uh, that it seems very self-explanatory based on the context of this, that the focus there is on the significance. Of, it's on Jesus's teaching. So um, it, it's, it's an analogy in that what we're saying, if you build your life on uh, Jesus's teaching, if you're putting Jesus's teaching into practice, that's what... Um, uh, this looks like. And, and it's interesting in the Luke version that we didn't read, uh, he adds a description there that the, this man dug down deep and laid a foundation. Yeah. So wisdom in this sense um, is the disciple who's following Jesus, putting into practice the words of Jesus. That's what it means to build your, your, your house on the rock. The question we've got is, what are the storms referring to in this passage? Yeah. And before we get into the, the interpretations, I was thinking just, you know, the thing that I've probably heard preach the most out of this, which I don't even think is an interpretation we should spend too much time on. But we always hear those sermons about how it's just about the everyday storms of life. And if you just build your life on the rock of Jesus, no storm can collapse your house. And it's not like there's anything necessarily wrong with the application, but it really just, it's, it really blows over a really deep, uh, complicated issue. Yeah, in this I, I think the problem with that is everyday storms, because obviously yeah, right. th- this passage is talking about something more calamitous. So we're going to look at at several um, uh, different interpretations. The first one is similar to the one you mentioned. It's not quite so commonplace as the storms, but this is this is referring to the storms of life are encountered by by people everywhere. And the moral of the story then is that 
Listen, the only way you're going to survive the biggest of life's trials is if you are founded on the rock of Jesus's teaching. This is John Chrysostom's view. He's an ancient church father. Augustine had this view. Um, Arland Hultgren has done a lot of of work on the parables in in recent years, um, and he points to the imagery of storms in the Jewish tradition. There's quite a bit, even in the Psalms, um, that 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 really do back up the 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 view that the storm is is a is severe trial that comes uh, in your life. And then uh, there's also Holkren actually mentioned some evidence also from the Gospel of Matthew talking about certain calamities that are going to come against the disciples of Jesus, persecution, abuse, just terrible things in life that could come because you are practicing the way of Jesus. Um, and the only way to survive the, this, those kinds of uh, personal calamitous storms of life is by being founded on the rock. So that's the first interpretation. Yeah, so the difference between that and kind of what we were joking about earlier is that's talking about real-life persecution trials, not uh, my car didn't start this morning, which yes. is how it gets applied that's in right. yes. a lot of sermons. Okay, Absolutely. second interpretation uh, is actually more of an eschatological reading. Okay, so it says that the storms of life represent ju- divine judgment. So it's more of an eschatological term. Uh, so this isn't trials and struggles now, even major ones, but it's actually pointing forward to God's final judgment on the world when Christ returns. So some have argued even that the rain here is like an allusion to the flood of Noah. So the, you know, the original hearers would have heard that and immediately been reminded of uh, the flood of Noah. Uh, there's also the surrounding context, uh, which mentions you know, the day of the Lord in Matthew 7, uh, 13 to 23, which is very eschatological. Uh, Klein Snodgrass, you know, he's uh, a noted uh, parable scholar, uh, notes that the word wise, we talked about wisdom earlier, uh, often carries an eschatological nuance. The wise person is one who is aware of the eschatological hour, or in the words of Trevor Wax, he knows what time it is. Eschatological discipleship. Yeah, or eschatological saying, discipleship, a, either one. Throwing out to, by the, by the way, Klein Snodgrass' book uh, on the parables is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So his, his book, Stories with Intent, is fantastic. Um, yeah, so and and so basically the contrast between the wise and foolish builder here is a climactic finale to Jesus' whole sermon because it demonstrates the seriousness of what's at stake, right? Discipleship in your life matters uh, because of the far-reaching implications that transcend this life's trials and extend into the life to come. Okay, so storms as trials of life, storms as coming judgment. There's one more interpretation we want to mention, the third one. Um, I'll, I'll call this just the historical reading. That is that the storms of life here actually refer to the coming fall of Jerusalem and God's judgment on Israel. So it's a it's kind of a, a, a historical take on the second one that Brandon just mentioned about judgment. And but in that it's it's speaking specifically about Israel um, and being founded on the rock. It's saying, look, um, the very fact that that this is talking about the wise man building on the rock, um, building a house. Um, uh, the, using the, the Hebrew noun there could refer to God's own house, which would be the temple. So I mean, N.T. Wright, for example, would take the eschatological judgment view, but then apply it very specifically mm. to Jesus's warnings about his own teacher, t- about the temple. And basically, this is a, a prophecy in some sense. It's a parable, but that's also prophesying judgment on the temple that when the storms come in this way, it'll be, you know, through the through the an invasion mm-hmm. um that the the temple will no longer stand so that your the the house that's no longer built on Jesus's teaching is not going to going to withstand the storms. Yeah, what was that what was that passage we talked about in the previous episode where we talked about the temp, the fall of the temple and I think you and I disagreed on if Jesus was actually talking immediately about the fall of the temple. I can't remember I which can't passage remember that either. was. Well, I'm sure one of our listeners They know. They listen will, to every word. Love, yes. Probably yeah. twice because words matter. Or word matters. Um, okay, so let's talk about the uh, strengths and weaknesses here. And let's be clear: um, we need to say that all 
of the uh, views are within the boundary of orthodoxy. We like to remind people that sometimes because sometimes of these people are heretical. Some people get crazy, and you can disagree with us, and it doesn't mean you're a heretic yeah. or that we're heretics. It means you're wrong, but not you're a heretic. Or that you may be right, but it doesn't mean we're heretics either. Uh, so, uh, for, so for me, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna take kind of a position here, I think the first interpretation uh, is where I immediately resonate. It's probably because I've heard it preached so many times, but actually the eschatological interpretation, the second one, uh, is pretty hard to argue with. And I think that's probably the best way forward. Although uh, the first one probably has a little bit of, of um, uh, credence as well. Uh, so, you know, one thing that we see in Jesus's teaching is that he does address people where they are, but he's always pointing them forward, right? So that's why I like the eschatological feel here. Uh, so in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, right, Jesus is talking about a kingdom that's already here, and it's not not yet come all the way, but it's already here. Uh, so on the one hand, you should be living with hope and obedience to Jesus now because the kingdom has come and that there's commands now. Uh, and so whatever whatever happens in your life now, it matters. But on the other hand, Jesus is always pointing forward, right? He's always telling them to live now in light of the new creation, right? So in the new creation, we want to show uh, the watching world that there's a new creation, that there's hope to come. Uh, and secondly, we want to live for Christ now because we're going to live with him for eternity, right? So there is a, a, an aspect of what we do now really matters long time, uh, long term, and the final judgment is no joke at all. So I like that second view. I think Jesus is um, eschatological quite often in his, in his teachings because he's always pointing forward uh, to new creation now and new creation later. Yes. Yeah, so... Um... I, I'm basically I land where you do. I, I think the third interpretation, the historical reading, is very interesting. I just I don't feel strongly enough about that to make that to say this is a coded warning against the current temple situation. I I find that interesting. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, but I think it's probably better to be a little more general than to be that specific about what that parable is what is referring to or what Jesus was initially referring to. So I go back to the eschatological reading too. Surprise, surprise, I've written about eschatological discipleship. Anybody that's, uh, you know, the, the two people out there that have read my book on this subject <laughs> would not be surprised that this is where I go with it. Um, and I get it. There is evidence that it could be the storms of life because of Old Testament passages that that use the storms in that way. There is that rich theological history of interpreting the parable that way. I mean, Augustine, Chrysostom, these are not, I mean, these are really giants in the interpretive tradition. Oh. Um, but the reason I lean toward the eschatological interpretation is because you've got more Bible passages in the Old Testament linking storms to God's judgment than you do the trials of life. And you've also got a parallel parable that I think we should mention. Um, you, you, you know, the story of the wise and the foolish bridesmaids. It comes up later in the Gospel of Matthew. Very similar feel to this one. And in that case, the return of Christ, coming judgment, that, that's the clear interpretation. And I think there's a bit of a parallel between this parable and that one, um, and that Matthew saw these two is together. So uh, so ultimately, I'm, I'm going to go with the eschatological reading, not, not saying that the first one to apply it that way is wrong, just just that I think the second one is most likely what, what's in view here. So keeping that in mind, how would you preach or teach or, or share the truths that are that are in this in this parable, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, I think for today's church, you know, you can start a lot of places here. I don't think it's even wrong necessarily to go to the storms of life aspect of it or the major trials, cancer, divorce, you know, some major trial like that. Uh, but ultimately, I think the, the reason why the eschatological view makes so much sense is a, I think Jesus, that's the, the point of his teaching primarily is an eschatological discipleship. See how many times we can say that in one <laughs> podcast. Uh, but also, uh, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're teaching this passage to people, it, just, it seems very clear to be able to talk to them about why making disciples makes sense. It's not just about making people 
good. It's not just about trying to make people love their neighbor, which is great. And again, the kingdom is already and not yet. So there is a part of it that you're living out new creation now, you're previewing eternity, you're showing what Christ is like. Uh, But ultimately, making disciples is about people living with God forever, living in the new creation. And so I think that's what Jesus is pointing to. And I think that's a very, very easy thing to preach today. It's not received well, but it's a very easy sermon to get up and say, look, this God is calling you to something now because of something that's coming later. And you're going to have trials now and you're going to have tribulations now, but ultimately it's all pointing towards something, which is God making all things new. So that's where I'm going to go with it. Yeah. um, For me, if if I'm preaching this passage, I want to leave people with the the feeling that they would have had if they heard Jesus tell this parable at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Mm. which is that there are massive stakes here. Um, so the the power, I think, of the parable is that Jesus is is lifting our vision from kind of the current moment uh, of just what's going on right here and right now, and and focusing things um, in light of eternity. And and the 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 reality is, and I think in our in our preaching, what I'm going to shoot for if I'm preaching on this passage is to to raise the stakes for there to be this sense that you know human lives matter. Human choices matter. Eternity hangs in the balance. You know, practicing, living according, building our lives upon the rock of Jesus' teaching and practicing doing what he says. Um, this vision of discipleship is um, is not only attractive, it should feel urgent. Yeah. And so I think I think when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, he's Jesus has just laid out the two ways to live. He's just said that there are going to be prophets who are doing uh, things in his name, and yet he doesn't know them. I mean, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. And then you get to this, and I mean, it just elevates the stakes so, so high. So when I'm preaching, I I just, I, I'm always trying to to take something of the tone uh, that is coming at, at the end uh, or that that is present in the passage and to and to really make sure that my preaching is infused with that. And I want people ultimately walking away kind of like the people did after they heard Jesus tell this parable the first time where they were amazed at the authority of God in in these words. And obviously us preaching Jesus, it's not the authority that's in us, um, but in his words. And I, you want people to sense that they've heard Jesus speak through through the preacher. And that's that's ultimately what we're going for. Yeah. Amen. All right, Trevin. Thanks as always. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.